Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with assistant Tony Fruin. Fruin was Kubrick's assistant for over 30 years, beginning with 2001 A Space Odyssey. He would later write the screenplay for Brian W. Cook's Color Me Kubrick, and he serves as the producer of Jan Harlan's documentary, Stanley Kubrick, A Life in Pictures. Uh, now, you, your father uh, originally worked for Mr. Kubrick, is that correct, and that's how you became involved with him? Uh, yes, he did. Yeah, my, my, my father had worked in the film industry since, um, I don't know, the, um, just after the um, end of the war, and worked at MGM Studios. Right. And, and so you you had a you definitely had a uh, a consciousness of of Mr. Kubrick's films. What what were you particularly taken by in that early part of his career? Well, um, well, not really. Um, rather partially. I mean, um, we're, we're talking about the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 1960s, we by we I mean me, my friends. Um, we only went to see foreign language films, you know, the French Nouvelle Vague, uh, Bergman, Fellini, and particularly Bunuel. And, um, well, we, you know, we, we didn't go to see American films, but um, there was one American film that we went to see, and that was uh, Dr. Strangelove. Mm. And it quite... Um, it was, it was quite startling to see that film because we, we didn't think that um, uh, an American could make a film like that. Yeah. I mean, this deeply cynical look at the arms race. Um, you know, we, we'd all been used to growing up with films about mad scientists, but not films about mad generals and mad uh, politicians. And it really knocked us for six, that film. Mm-hmm. And... Um, made a very big impression on it. But I, um, but it was, it was, you know, a little while later that um, my father, who was working at MGM Studios, said, listen, we, we need a runner on this film, um, on, on the pre-production, this film that we're starting up. And um, uh, I said, well, what film is it? You know, what's it about? And he said, uh, well, it's a thing called... Um, uh, it's either called 2001 or Journey to the Stars by Stanley Kubrick, mm. this young American director. And it, um, I was a bit sort of reluctant to go down, but my father really had to pressure me. And uh, I went down, I was interviewed by Stanley one Sunday morning, and he said, when can you start? I said, when do you want me to start? He said, 7.30 tomorrow morning. I said, you've got a deal. <laughs> So prior to that time, had you had you worked uh, in in film at all, or was this the first time? No, not at all. No, yeah. no. I, I mean, I'd never even considered it. Hmm. Um, I, you know, I just went from one dead end job to another, um, with um, with no career trajectory in mind. Right. 
So with with 2001, you you said that they needed a runner for the film. So essentially, your your duties encompassed any number of things. Whatever whatever Mr. Kubrick needed at that time. Well, whatever the production needed. Um, but um, I mean, Stanley and I, I, I mean, got on very well. Um, and uh, I sort of he he sort of took me away from. Um, being everybody's runner to who uh, being his runner, mm-hmm. and um, as I said, we would sort of um, hold on one second. Sure. Hello. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Hi. Um, well, that, that that Sunday morning. Um, this was back in September. 65 on the pre-production of 2001. I, I remember very vividly. Um, my, my father showed me in, into an office um, and said, "You know, wait here and I'll see where Stanley is." And he showed me into an office, and it was full of hundreds and hundreds of books, um, books on um, modern art, fantastic art, surrealism, um, cosmology, flying saucers. And I thought, gee, you know, I wouldn't mind the job here just so I could read these books. <laughs> um, um, you know, sort of expensive French art editions, books of Max Ernst, things like this. And I started reading one of the books on Max Ernst. And um, this guy walked through the office, who I thought was, I don't know, some sort of cleaner or something, you know, looking rather scruffy. In an old jacket, he smiled at me and went out, and then he came back a little while later. And he said, who are you? And I said, uh, uh, he said, uh, who are you? Are you Eddie's son? And I said, yes. He said, oh, I'm Stanley Kubrick. And he sort of offered his hand to me. And um, he said, I'm opposite me. And he said, um, you're looking at the book on Max Ernst. And I said, yeah. And I said, I'm a big fan of Max Ernst. And... Um, he said, uh, I, he said, well, on this film, I've got to create a lot of extraterrestrial landscapes. I mean, hence I've got books like the thing on Max Ernst and Surrealist books and so on. Mm-hmm. He said, um, have you got any suggestions? Um, who else I should be looking at? Now, I was just a week past my 17th birthday, and I'd been working for a couple of years. And, you know, nobody ever asked me anything, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, not even, you know, what's the weather. And, uh, you know, I was sort of very flattered by this. And um, we spent the next hour, a couple of hours, just talking about surrealism, about UFOs, extraterrestrial life, and so on. And uh, I just found it so sort of exhilarating um, talking to this guy. I mean, it was a sort of Catherine wheel of ideas. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I was then doing some temporary work working for some baker's union in London, and uh, you know I started the, the, the next day, Monday morning. Wow. And uh, as I say, we always got on very well, and um, so I ended up as his assistant after about three or four weeks, uh, doing whatever he asked me to do. Well, it, it, maybe it's not definable, but what do you think did click between the two of you? Well, it's, um, uh, I, 
don't know. You know, it's a bit like saying, you yeah, know, what do you like about your wife? You know, you say, mm-hmm. well, you know, she's nice looking, she's pleasant personality, but it somehow doesn't get to it, to exactly define it. Um, he, um, I, I noticed this subsequently as, as well. I mean, at that time, Stanley had a lot more confidence in me than I had, my, had in myself. And he was very good at picking people out, picking out a kind of face in the crowd and thinking, you know, this is somebody who's a bit underused. Um, this is somebody who's got some sort of potential. And, um, you know, I was sort of young and eager and uh, full of energy and, uh, uh, and obviously, uh, you know, sort of read quite a bit and had a quite inquiring mind. And uh, he, on the other hand, as I say, was was just such an exhilarating Catherine wheel of ideas and mm. projects and so on. Um, and of course, he needed somebody uh, as an assistant. <laughs> now I hear that all. I've heard that so many times that obviously he was a man of insatiable curiosity, but that he could carry a conversation with. With, with anyone, uh, way outside of his field, he 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 had such a knowledge base. Uh, and did you? What kind of conversations did you witness uh, that he had with with different kind of people of different areas that that fascinated you? Well, in, in uh, I mean, in all sorts of areas, but he was he was very good at synthesizing information. Uh, and also making um, sympathies that other that may have escaped other people. Um, uh, he, he often used to suggest that this came from you know his sort of chess playing background, but uh, you know that really hurts like a kind of chicken and egg. Mm. I mean, he was good at chess because he was um, uh, you know good at sort of looking forward, um, you know, rolling through the permutations in his mind. Um, how to go about things, but he um, he had a kind of uh, he had an insatiable curiosity. I mean, right up until the end, and was enthusiastic about finding out about things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, knowledge fascinated him, but not the um, not just accumulating it, but building upon it and you know extrapolating from it. You know, he wasn't you know like one of these. Um, Sort of idiot savants who, who just accumulated knowledge. I mean, knowledge was a means to an end for him. And when he was building a project, uh, his approach was to kind of exhaust every avenue of, of possibility to to find out what what it was. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, on all. On all, all, all of his films, I mean, he, he exhaustively researched, um, you know, the subject. Um, I mean, continually, and, and never felt that you know we'd reach the stage where we knew everything that we needed to know. We needed to know. I mean, it was a, a continual, ongoing mm-hmm. quest. And and with when he was prepping two thousand one, when you came on board. Was because I I know your your book that you that that you released of the various conversations he had with with scientists and, and, and various figures in different oh, fields. No, no 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 it wasn't conversations that Stanley had. 
Um, sorry. Um, no, that's fine. <laughs> I have a cold. I have a cold too. That I'm, yeah, I'm me fine. too. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, what happened was that, um, uh, and this was probably before your time. Um, back in the um, in the 1960s, I mean, science fiction in the cinema um, was, to use a, an expression of Dizzy Gillespie's, um, lower than whale shit. Mm. I mean, it, science fiction was, um, you know, Mar- Mars Attacks, um, Saturday Morning Pictures for Kids, Flash Gordon, all that sort of nonsense. Right. And prior to the 60s, I mean, it, it, it didn't have a good... Uh, genealogy in the, in the cinema, um, with uh, perhaps two, two or three exceptions. So science fiction was looked upon as something for kids and, you know, I mean, not something terribly serious. So here was Stanley making this big film for MGM that um, was decidedly science fiction or futuristic. So at the beginning of um, the production, what he... Um, what he thought was needed. Um, now, here was a film that was exploring the possibility of extraterrestrial life, you know, uh, flight to the stars and so on. So he he felt that he needed to show that these were legitimate scientific concerns mm-hmm. and that they weren't just nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. So what he did was... Um, he, um, he got Roger Carras, who was a sort of publicity chief, who worked for him. Uh, he got Roger Carras to go around the world interviewing various scientists, uh, you know, astronomers, um, anthropologists, um, philosophers, um, a rabbi, uh, and so on, and putting a number of questions to them about the possibility of extraterrestrial life and what it would mean. Uh, to us were it to be discovered. So Roger went around the world, uh, I mean, filming these interviews. And the idea was that Stanley would edit them down and it would uh, form a sort of prologue to the film. Mm-hmm. So um, people would uh, you know, be sitting in the cinema and before the film started, here were these clips of scientists, you know, um, saying that these questions were a legitimate concern, um, what were legitimate questions. But, I mean, as the film, uh, the making of 2001 progressed, and the film got longer and longer, I mean, Stanley realized, A, there wasn't uh, going to be the time to have this prologue, mm-hmm. and B, I mean, the film really had to stand on its own two feet anyway. So all these interviews, um, this proposed prologue was scrapped. And then, um, and uh, a couple of years after Stanley died, I thought, um, gee, I should really dig out these interviews um, because they would make um, a marvelous um, uh, sort of extra features for a re-release, a DVD re-release of 2001. Mm-hmm. Now, I, la- I last saw all these 35mm cans of film on my desk at MGM Studios in, what, towards the end of 1968. Um, well, the thing is, I couldn't find them. I mean, I went to all the labs, the archives, and so on, 
and they seem to have disappeared off the face of the earth. Now, certainly um, wouldn't have destroyed them, but I mean, God knows where they are. But what I did find was a transcript of all the interviews that had been done um, purely for editing purposes mm. by um, Stanley's secretary, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, she wasn't familiar with, um, you know, the scientific or technical terms and just did a sort of hurried phonetic translation. So what I did was edit all of those interviews and footnote them and so on and write an introduction, and that was what was published. Okay. Now, I mean, I, um, I mean, I think these interviews must exist somewhere, but they're probably sitting in some archive mislabeled. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you that you bring that up the 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 pieces of of some of these films that that are missing but but we know that they're out there somewhere because I'm sure you read in the news just last week uh concerning 2001 the that they've discovered 17 minutes of footage that he removed in a salt mine I think in Kansas or or something uh YouTube or something yeah that's that's perfectly preserved now he he wouldn't want that to to be seen, would he? He cut it out for a reason. Uh, yeah. Well, no, he, he probably wouldn't. Um, but, you know, you then have this thing of, um, well, you know, Stanley really now belongs to history, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think you owe it to history um, to... Um, you know, I, I don't think you should recut it into the film, but I mean, it should certainly be available for people. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, a great man dies and thinks, well, I don't want any of my letters or my diary um, uh, ever to reach public gaze. But you know, they're, they're, um, one does have a duty to history as well. Yeah. Did he ever? I, I'm, I'm guessing that the answer is no. Uh, but but so many of his films uh, kind of embrace uh, the ambiguous, uh, so so they're open to various interpretations. And and I've found this, it's amazing. I, I found the most varied interpretations related to The Shining. Uh, I've had some fascinating discussions about the, the hidden meanings of The Shining. Uh, do you did he never discussed meaning in his films? With you or or anyone, did he? No, no, he didn't. I, I mean, uh, and uh, I think that's very much uh, to his credit. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I mean, I mean, you know, any work of art is is is, uh, is open to um, you know multiple interpretations. I mean, there isn't one that's one and correct. Right. Um, I mean, if the artist's any good, I mean, he'll certainly push, you know, the spectator or the reader or the viewer in a certain direction. But, you know, the Stanley one said, um, you know, I mean, uh, if, if, you know, if I wanted to write propaganda, uh, I'd write a propaganda pamphlet. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you can look at Piles of, of Glory and say it's an anti-war film, and probably nobody would uh, disagree with you, but it, it's also more than that. Yes. You know, it, it's... It's about the relationships between people and the, between their ideals and their sense of honor and what they can and cannot achieve. Um, you know, as um, 
you know, Sam Goldwyn said years ago, I mean, if you've got a message, use Western Union. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, there is a message, obviously. I mean, um, uh, but, you know, there's so much more. I mean, you could look at, you know, um, the novel Moby Dick and say, well, you know, it's a, it's a sea story. <laughs> well, sure it is, but, you know, it's a little more than that as well. Yeah. Well, that's why his films survive like like no one else's I can I can think of because uh, tw- twenty years after I first watched one of his films and I've seen them many times in the intervening years, uh, they they mean something different to me. I'm more I'm receptive to something different in them. They reveal deeper layers of truth to me, uh, and and uh, it's a f- a fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of these different interpretations, and I, I suppose they started with with 2001. Did it interest him? What what people took from it? Their own their own particular interpretations of these films. Well, it, it yes, it did. I mean, he was he was obviously interested. I mean, it it, it, um, it went from a whole spectrum from exasperation, you know, to amusement. Um, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I, I have heard some that are some interpretations that are, that are quite amusing. Well, you know, listen, just going to the internet. I mean, we never realized how much craziness. There was. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, now he he watched every every film. Did did every film come to him? Did a lot of films come to him that he that he viewed? Well, he, he, he watched films regularly, yeah. Um, uh, you know, as much as he could. Yeah. And it, did you have any particular memories of watching films with him and, and movies that he were he was particularly taken by? He he uh, he tended to watch films um, at the weekend or evenings with his family. Um, uh, because he, um, you know, we shipped the films into him. He had a um, projection room at his house. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, he had some fun favourites. Um, I always remember in 2001, he thought Battle of Algiers was one of the great films ever made. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was he was uh, always was always talking about that. Was terribly enthusiastic about it. He thought Arjé Vida's Danton was one of the greatest historical films ever made. Mm. Um, you know, he liked certain directors. You know, some of the Italian directors. Um, um, some of the, you know, the American sort of mainstream directors of the thirties and forties. You know, John Ford's people like that. Yeah, I mean, they have a very sort of Catholic taste in filmmaking. Well, I I would think it's, with something like did he tend to watch uh, a lot of titles that related to the films that he was working on at the time? Like, did he look into the most obscure kind of sci-fi movies leading up to two thousand one? He he watched quite a few science fiction films and. Um, his attitude to science fiction films was rather like his attitude to science fiction literature. And that was, you know, there were some good ideas there, but, you know, 
the lack of characterization, the lack of development, um, you know, just exasperated him. I mean, you know, he just thought it was so silly and stupid. Mm. Um, but as you know, he said at the time, well, what, what he wanted to make was the proverbial good science fiction film. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, you know, with the release of 2001, I mean, science fiction would never ever be the same again in the cinema. No. no. And you can see what it, what, what it sort of gave birth to. But, um, you know, I, I must say from a personal point of view, I mean, um, you know, as the special effects have got better, the, the stories have got more banal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you look at something like the opening five minutes of the film Lost in Space, well... When we were making 2001, if anyone had ever said to us, you know, you could, this is what you could do, special effects-wise, we wouldn't believe them. Mm -hmm. So you have this, you know, tremendous special effects and, and a story that's, you know, out of a comic book. And, and yet, the, the, I mean, the effects of 2001 are, are flawless. I mean, the, the 2001 is not a film that you, you look back on, like other films, just ten years ago and say... Oh well, we're doing it much better now. I mean, for for the world that he created in that film, it's flawlessly rendered. Yeah, um, it is indeed. But it, it's also the, um, the, the I don't know, I can't think of a better term, but it, it's the it's how well it's made. But also the sort of content and the implicitness yes. of the film. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a weighty film. Um, I mean, it's very entertaining. But it, 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 it has a weight um, with the issues that it's dealing with and how it deals with them. That's it. That's why that's why his films survive because they're because of the ideas. Uh, I mean, in two thousand one, yes, asks yes. questions and explores avenues that that we're always going to going to be asking ourselves as long as there is a, yes. a mankind. Um, and that brings up an interesting point, two interesting points, because some some people view uh, the film as anti-technology in a way. And but I know that Mr. Kubrick was very enamored with with technology. He was fascinated by it, wasn't he? Well, yeah, but um, but not in itself. I mean, um, it was a means to an end for him. Um, I mean, technology for its own sake. I mean, I, I don't think it interested in him at all. But he, um, you know, as he used to say, anything that saves time is worth its weight in gold. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, for instance, in the, in the early 1980s, um, he, uh, he came into my office one day and said, well, it's, uh, I've got you an IBM green screen. You know what that is? Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Yeah, you know, this was this first generation of um, PCs that IBM made. You know, you had a little 12-inch screen that was black with green letters reversed out. You didn't even have a hard drive. You had two five and a quarter floppies. Mm. And he said, well, you know, this is the future. I mean, this is where we're going to go. You know, you've, um, you've got to get used to it. And I said, listen, honestly, Stanley, I'm really happy with my two IBM um, typewriters. You know, <laughs> yeah. I've got my IBM Golf Ball here, 
which was my own, with about 12 uh, different golf balls, right? Mm-hmm. And I had an IBM proportionate spaced um, Selectric. And, you know, these two machines to me were, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, boy, what could you invent after them? Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, no, 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 no. He said, listen, you've got to get used to this um, IBM computer. And um, I, I was really a luddite. I said, no, no, Stanley, you know, I mean, you know, I like to type something and then take a piece of paper out, right? And he said, no, no, this is, you know, anyway, the thing was installed and, I was really resentful, you know. I, I mean, I wanted sheets of paper with typing on it, you know, not some stuff on the screen. Right. The idea that it it was stored somewhere. Um, but he, um, well, you know, the rest is history, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, well, he was always on the cutting edge, te- te- technology-wise, in terms of the making of, of films. I mean, oh, oh, sure, sure, but but also also sort of daily, uh, you know, office life. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, we were the, about that time. Um, Stanley also bought, uh, well, it was about nineteen eighty-two, I think. Stanley bought a fax machine. Mm-hmm. Now, up until then, I, I uh, we had a telex machine. And I was the telex operator, and um, yeah, we got this fax machine. And the, the attitude from a lot of other people in the film industry was, boy, you know. You know, you guys don't know what to spend your money on, do you? You know, buying <laughs> stuff like that, you know. Um, but, you know, suddenly you could fax artwork or whatever, um, you know, across to Warner Brothers in California. Yeah, yeah. And vice versa. You know, and, um, you know, people made fun of this, you know, silly bloody fax machine. Well, you know, 18 months later, you know, the local builder down the road in St. Albans has got a fax machine in his uh, office. Mm-hmm. So... Um, as I say, you know, Stanley was, was always very eager to grab um, sort of technological innovations. Um, um, unlike the rest of us, you know, who tended to drag our heels. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, of course, applied to filmmaking as well. I mean, in terms of lenses, cameras, steady cams, whatever. Exactly. You know, he, yeah. he, he certainly never let the grass grow under his feet. Another another thing that interests me is his his view of humanity because he I think a lot of people misread his films and miss the compassion in them um, and maybe that has to do with the ambiguity of his films or how he was he he gave equal time to the kind of dual nature of man and you didn't get a sense that he judged his characters, but could you expand upon that, the, the compassion that he had in, in some of these films? Um, well, I certainly think he had compassion, but I mean, he wasn't blinded to the faults of uh, mankind. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, mean, I mean, coming back to what you said a moment ago, I mean, a lot of people have you know, said, oh, well, Stanley was only interested in technology and um, projects and not in people. Well, I mean, how could you say that if somebody directed to say a film like Lolita or Path of Glory mm-hmm. or even Eyes Wide Shut? Um, you know, how people behaved, how they behaved towards each other, I mean, their ideals, their ambitions. I mean, all of his films, I mean, I mean are, are solidly to do with that. 
Oh. I mean, you know, you, you know, his films are not staffed with the club puppets, are they? No, no. You know, and perhaps, uh, well, you, you certainly couldn't say Stanley was a sentimental director. I mean, but perhaps this is what people want, or what critics want. You know, they want it laid on with a trowel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't get a sense that a, a lot of films make it very easy for you. You can feel the director judging the character. You know exactly how you're supposed to feel about that character. Uh, in something like A Clockwork Orange, uh, Alex is shown, um, you know, he's in some sense he's never more alive than when he's wrecking havoc as he is. He's he, When he's living in his id, uh, at the flip side, I mean, he's he's deeply moved by Beethoven. He's he's very uh, cultured. He's he's capable of that kind of uh, feeling. Um, well, well, what, what do people want? I mean, you know, do they want the cinema to be a kind of unrelenting diet of Andy Hardy films? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm with you. I agree. <laughs> I agree. You know, Hi, Ma. Hi, Andy. Hi, hi. <laughs> Where's Pa? You know. Um, well, you, you know, it, it's uh, you know, criminal or no criminal or, or delinquent or cynical or self-centered people. I, I mean, uh, you know, just as worthy of of, of study uh, as uh, you know, Saint Teresa, right? Mm-hmm. There's also seems to be a Distrust of power uh, running through his films. I mean, I'm thinking about a Clockwork Orange, and, um, and how he he seems to be saying that the greater sin is is the government trying to remove the free will. I, I imagine. Well, well, that that um, of course is the argument in Clockwork Orange. But um, you're quite right. I mean, running through. Um, Stanley's films is a, a, a distrust of power, um, uh, particularly great power. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he uh, he used to agree with. Well, he did agree with. You know, what Lord Acton said that all power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, you've only got to pick up the newspaper any day of the week, you know, to see, you know, to read about the corruption of power. And how this corrupts people, um, but what you know, what you have to have is, is, is checks on this. You know, is, is transparency, mm-hmm. um, counter checks. You know, to to, to stop people um, being corrupt. I mean, uh, it's a it, it's a difficult one. Mm-hmm. You you say that he was, and it's obvious that he was so kind of exhaustive in his approach to each project and even the projects that never came to fruition. Um, so when he reached the end of a film, when he finished a, a Clockwork Orange or any of these films, I mean, did he truly feel that he was, he was, he reached the finish line in exploring that particular, I mean, did, was he completely happy with each of his films? Um... Well, while he was making any particular film, he was also, I mean, um, um, looking around, reading things, you know, for his next film. Mm. 
Well, you, you know, listen, you have to eventually draw, draw a circle around something, draw a line, mm-hmm. and say, that's it, that's finished. I mean, I, I, I've got to move on to something else. Um, as to whether he... Uh, as to whether he... Well, I, I don't know, it, it's a... a, a it's a sort of silly thing to say, really. I do ask, you know, did, did he like his films? I uh, I don't know. I, I suspect that he looked at them and thought, you know, in later years and think, well, you know, that could have been improved there, that could have been improved there. Um, I mean, he, he was a very self-effacing man. Mm. Um, and... Um, would never, uh, uh, would never have thought. Well, you know, gee, I'm a great director. Look at that great film I've made. You know? <laughs> um, I, I guess what I was getting at more so was uh, when he when he's so invested in in the minutia of every detail. Uh, did was he able to let it go and and feel? Yes, I explored that to its fullest potential. Well, I, I think he, he would always think you know there was something to add. Mm-hmm. Um, something further to find out, but you know, eventually you have to call it a day. Right. The 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 film, A Clockwork, or- a Clockwork Orange. Could you give me a sense of um, its reception? Was he anticipating it becoming so scandalized? Because of the subject matter. Well, well, it, well, it was um, to use your word scandalized. I mean, the, the only scandal, the scandalous reception of the film was in this country. Uh huh. I mean, it was um, it played everywhere else in the world, okay, and people um, looked upon it, you know, as, as a serious and um, you know creative piece of filmmaking. But it was only over here that um, you know the shit hit the fan. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you go back to the early 70s, there was um, there was a chap over here called Lord Longford, mm. who was, uh, who was uh, I guess, a bit batty. But at the time, he, um, he was quite an influential person. And he sort of... And there was another woman called Mary Whitehouse who ran something called the Viewers and Listeners Association. And um, the two ended up as um, bedmates, not literally, but um, because they both um, saw, they said, well, you know, there's a lot of violence in society now. I wonder what's causing it. Ah, we know what's causing it. It's violence in the media. You know, it's violent films, violent television. Um, these uh, these films and TV programs are having a bad effect on people and um People watch them and then go out and commit crimes, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, simple minds demand simple solutions, right? So if you stop violence on TV and violence in films, I mean, everything will be okay. Um, well, they were sort of caught with their pants down with Sam Peckinpah's film and Straw Dogs, but then Clockwork Orange came along. And they said, oh, well, this is precisely the sort of film that's hastening the demise of society, that is um, promoting violent crimes. Mm. And what would happen is some, you know, fly guy would be in court for, you know, 
mugging an old lady or something, and he'd get up in court and say, oh, well, you know, um, I was a law-abiding citizen until I saw that film Clockwork Orange. That film Clockwork Orange made me do it, right? <laughs> yes. And then Lord Longford and Mary Whitehouse would point to this individual and say, see, what we've been saying all these years is true. And so they all settled on um, Clockwork Orange. You know, here was this American director living in uh, in England, <coughs> making these violent films that were destroying society. And I mean, it was just crazy and insane. And um, and after a while, Stanley thought, well, you know, sub this. Um, and... Um, got to ask Warner Brothers to, to withdraw its distribution in this country. Yeah. And it was um, withdrawn until about uh, two years after um, Stanley's death when um, Mrs. Kubrick um, said to Warner Brothers that she she would have no objection to um, re-releasing the film, which they did. Yeah. And th- those are still arguments, very shallow arguments that we're still, still dealing with Today, a lot of people blaming media for exacerbating, you know, violent ills in society. Uh, again, like there's no free will. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, as I said, you know, simple minds demand simple solutions, don't they? Yeah. Had he ever considered? Because we've spoken a lot to people about his his comfort in England. I mean, obviously it was his home and he had, the, he was surrounded by the warmth of his family and friends and he, he found working conditions a lot more, a lot preferable in England than the U S but did he ever consider coming back to the U S to make a film? No, I don't think so. Mm. Uh, and, and then I, I also, also want to ask about his work with, with actors as you observed it. Uh, because obviously there's a definite process that he he goes through when he's directing actors. What was that dynamic like between director and actor with Kubrick? Well, I, th- I think he he thought. I mean, you know, ninety percent of the of the, uh, the job was really casting correctly, right? Uh-huh. You know, you um, you don't get Anthony Quinn in and then you know try to to um, get him to act like Cary Grant, right? <laughs> yes. Um, you know, so, um, you know, that that was the first consideration. I mean, get, casting it correctly, getting the right actor in. I used to spend a lot of time with actors. Um, um, but he, he would um, also, um, you know, he would have certain ideas, the actor would have certain ideas. And sometimes, I mean, he'd do very many takes to see how it would develop, you know, it might, you know, the performances start subtly changing from take to take. Um, you know, to use one of his phrases, um, what was it? Uh, real is good, interesting is better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and to, to sort of mine um, a scene, um, to really exhaust it, to see what was there that, you know, perhaps neither he nor the actor um, had anticipated. And that's why a lot of people talk about the. I, I guess when you reach the mythic status of uh, like Mr. Kubrick did among movie fans, 
I mean, you hear all this kind of conjecture about his way of working, but I have found through speaking to people that he was anything but controlling because he let he allowed the scene to reveal itself on the on the day to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he wasn't Alfred Hitchcock, you know, who right. turned up with um, you know three storyboards and then showed them to the um, the actors and the cameraman and bang bang bang. As you say, I mean, he mined the scene and, and, and explored the scene. You know, some scenes more so than others. But um, you know, there might be something. As I said, you know, there might be something here that neither he nor the actor um, or actress, I mean, had um, had perceived mm-hmm. um, that would only come out after you know um, several takes. And he seemed to yeah, be. I mean, he was very loose in that way. Yeah. And he seemed to be, amongst the themes that he explored, he seemed to be particularly interested in the phenomenon of war because it was a subject that he returned to time and again, um, even with the the unfulfilled projects like the Napoleon and the Wartime Lies uh, films. Uh, yeah, well, sorry. No, no, what, what, what do you, what kind of, Elements do you think fascinated him about conflict? That kind of conflict. Well, the very nature of it, conflict. Um, that uh, you know, you know, war's pretty dramatic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in a love story, you know, you might only have you know two emotions in war. I mean, you've got one different type of emotion after another all the time. You know? Yeah. Did he did he feel that it was did he feel that it was uh, senseless? I mean, did did he see did he see equal parts um, it bringing out the, the 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 best in people and the worst? Well, yeah, I, I mean that's uh, the very nature of war, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's very glib to say you know war is senseless. Well, you know, I mean, some wars are as terrible as they are. I mean, are necessary. Um, I mean, you know, the difference between, say, um, fighting Hitler and going into Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, that's a bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Uh, his his work in genre uh, fascinates me as well. And and did he he was certainly aware of the other say war films made at this time. Um, did did you get a sense that he wanted to expand upon the restrictions of, of genre in some of these films? Uh, well, he he he, um, he used to say it's uh, it's easier to fall in love than find a good story, um, and all of his films about it are, are about are good stories. Mm-hmm. You know, they're stories of people of what happened to them, their emotions, their ideals, and everything else. And it, it's the story um, that um, a story that says something that goes somewhere that appealed to him. I mean, whether it happened to be 
you know, set in Vietnam or out of space, out of space. I mean, I, I don't think it really mattered to him, um, as long as it was a good, what he considered a good story. And, and what attracted him to uh, Napoleon? Because this was something that obsessed him. I mean, he had the largest. Well, well I, I, it, it, I don't think it obsessed him to any greater extent than any other project. I mean, mm. you know, he found um, en- uh, Napoleon endlessly fascinating. I mean, because again, it's a good story. I mean, the rise and fall and rise and how um, uh, you know the, the very character of the man was both responsible for his rise and his fall. Mm-hmm. And why did that? Ne- why did that never uh, happen? What the Napoleon project? Yes, sir. Well, for one very simple reason. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, he worked on it for a long time. It wasn't going to be a small budget film, right? Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, um, while he was still on the um, preparation of the film. The Sergei Bondarchuk film, Waterloo, with um, Rod Steiger came out, right? Yes. And, I mean, quite a well-made film. Um, you know, big production values, everything. They absolutely died at the box office. Mm. So, I mean, e- even, uh, you know, the Neanderthals at MGM or wherever, sort of, even they got the message, hold on, uh, Listen, if that film's gonna, you know, uh, gonna go down a U bend, what about this one? You know, we better not touch it. And uh, that was it. That was the end of it. And, and so it was simple as that. He, he, because I heard similarly with with uh, Arian Paper's uh, Wartime Lies, it was Schindler's List that kind of nixed the the, the progression of that project. Um, well, yeah, I think Stanley felt also that um, it didn't so much nix it, but it it, um, it would have been a hard act to follow so soon. Right. Um, and he'd, he'd been thinking about um, Traum novella, the uh, Schnitzler story, you know, Eyes Wide Shut for a long, long time anyway, and he thought perhaps it's right to do this now. Oh. Um, yeah, I think it, it was really a question of timing. Um, that, uh, it, it would have come out too soon after Schindler's List. And did he feel the timing of, of Full Metal Jacket was unfortunate because it just so happened to come on the heels of Platoon and, and some other f- surge of films from, from that era? Well, well, no, no. I mean, what happened there... <coughs> excuse me. What happened there was... Well, as you know, I mean, we took a little while to make our films. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we spent a long period of research and then uh, shooting and then um, release and post-production and so on. Well, um, when we started, uh, when Stanley started on Full Metal Jacket, um, there was uh, no other Vietnam film uh, visible anywhere. Mm-hmm. But um, while we were still making ours, you know, people would get the idea to go out and shoot and release Platoon or whatever. Um, 
But um, no, I mean, um, none of those films were on the go when we started Full Metal Jacket. Mm. Eyes, Eyes Wide Shut is actually the, the the Kubrick film that I return to the most. I, I, it's, it's very moving to me. I, I suppose it's my favorite of his films. Um, and as you said, he, he had been working on, on this project for a long, long time. I'm wondering what you think drew him to it. Um, yeah, he'd been working on it, I think, going back to about the early 1970s. Um, well, he, he, liked, he liked the sort of mystery of it, the uncertainty, the ambiguity. But also, I mean, it dealt with, um, uh, you know, a married couple. I mean, their devotion, their supposed uh, infidelity, um, you know, the whole dynamics of the marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and just what constitutes um, uh, infidelity. Um, <laughs> it, I don't know. It is a movie about infidelity that doesn't have really any infidelity in it. <laughs> it's in some ways. Well, it has a kind of meta infidelity, yeah. doesn't it? A, yeah. a dream or a daydream or whatever it is. Um, you know, uh, you know, the flashing thought as the lieutenant walks by. Mm-hmm. I mean, is is that infidelity? Yeah, you know, where your mind, where your mind has gone. Yeah, yeah. if not your body. Yeah. Was was he uh not to be confused with para infidelity. <laughs> yes. You know what para infidelity is? No, no, tell me. Uh, para infidelity is all the the guys your girlfriend fucked before she met you. 